This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series, Steadfast and Faithful, Experiencing Encouragement from the Psalms. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. Good morning, Axis family. It's a joy to be with you today. Uh, as has been mentioned, my name is Scotty Smith, I live in Franklin, Tennessee. My wife and I have lived in the greater Nashville area for 38 years now, so that means longer than most of you have been sucking oxygen. <laughs> Seeing a lot of changes, and those changes continue. And uh, in, in many ways, that's just a great theme for this morning when I first met with uh, Pastor Jeremy and Jordan. They said, Scotty, what we would love for you to do is just to craft a word for us that would blast our hearts with the gospel, this heart-liberating life-transforming power of God's grace. And so I have about 30 minutes to pour as much hope into your hearts as the Spirit will allow. And that's why I landed on this particular text. Uh, The book of Titus is one of my favorite letters because it really shows us how the gospel is always running to us that it might run through us. And Titus was one of the Apostle Paul's sons in the faith. And it's a beautiful picture of how, as the Apostle Paul increasingly came alive to the only love that's better than life, he simply loved to walk with other men and women with whom he would gossip the gospel. Uh, This theme of the gospel, as we'll see today again in this text, is one that reminds us there's really nothing more than the gospel. There's just more of the gospel. God's grace is not where we start, it's where we start, continue, and finish. And I'm so thankful today with you to walk through this incredible text just to see how rich encouragement leads to a very unique lifestyle. Now, having lived in this city for 38 years when I first had the joy of planning a church in Franklin, Tennessee with many friends called Christ Community Church, a lot of us were coming into that community in the mid-80s, coming out of legalism, pragmatism, Christian moralism. And we discovered early on the power of grace to set us free from a lot of really bad stuff. There is no life in self-righteousness. There is no freedom in Christianity as pragmatic, formula-based manipulation in life. There is no freedom in trying to put a bigger smile on the face of God, one that would indeed tragically ignore the riches of God's grace. So we were a community coming alive to what was not true, but as we journeyed together in the gospel, we realized that the gospel is not just setting us free from stuff. It's setting us free for a very unique lifestyle, a new kind of obedience, Not the obedience of guilt and shame and fear, but the obedience of faith and love. And we see this as Paul gives us this marvelous text. Just to kind of frame this conversation this morning, I got four words that will help us understand working through Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. We're going to talk about the riches of God's grace. We're going to talk about the reach of grace. We're going to talk about the righteousness of grace And finally, the rest of grace. Again, the riches of grace, the reach of grace, the righteousness of grace, and the rest of grace. Let me pray once more for us very quickly. 
Father, it is such a joy to be in this incredible community that is rooted in your love, standing in your grace, and position, Lord, to announce and to demonstrate the kingdom that has come and the kingdom that is coming. Lord, I pray you give me much joy in simply loving these whom you cherish. Thank you, Lord, for perhaps friends here today that are beginning just to look over the fence of this gospel to risk exploring uh, who is this Jesus. But Lord, for them and for us, those of us that have been walking with the Lord Jesus the longest, Lord, I pray uh, fresh nourishment, fresh understanding, fresh freedom to see the one who is our life and to live for him and not for ourselves. Lord, would you be pleased now to come and open wide our hearts to receive these uh, truly inexhaustible riches of your grace. We pray together in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Well, again, this text is very beautiful. I'm going to read through it once again very quickly because it's such a profound text. I'm actually reading from the NIV. I think you had read the ESV. A lot of great translations. I grew up on old NIV, first first, uh, version of it, and uh, that's where I still marinate. So just hear once again this text, and we'll walk through it together. Paul writes, for the grace of God has appeared Interesting, that word for appeared there is the word from which we get our English word epiphany. He's writing about epiphanies in this text. An epiphany is just a, an, an out of the darkness, a great light breaking in. So when Paul writes about appearing, there's a, there's a magnificent connection here of something that just shows up and it's startling and it's stunning and it's unavoidable. It grabs your attention. The grace of God has Epiphany has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. It teaches us, same word for teaching here is the word for training, so it's not just informing us, it's actually equipping and transforming us. It trains us, this grace, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age that phrase, present age, for Paul is very unique. It speaks of uh, the promised coming of the messianic reign. The, the present age is, is, is a phrase rooted in all the promises of the Old Testament that anticipated the day when God would send the Messiah to begin putting all things right. Paul says we are called to live in a unique fashion in this present age, this very present age, while... We are wired while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing. Second time in this text, the word epiphany is used. This is the only text in the entire Bible that uses the word epiphany in one text for the first and the second coming of Jesus. While we wait for the epiphany of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, And then notice lastly, because this is a big emphasis of our text, to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Love that phrase, eager to do the good. Not fearful of doing the wrong, but eager to do good. Well, let's walk through this text and just consider how Paul sings to our hearts as the church positioned 
to love the city of Nashville well. First of all, the riches of God's grace. Love this picture of grace appearing. And the riches of grace uh, are summarized for us so powerfully, actually, in the next chapter of Titus. Uh, Chapter 3, I want to read a few verses that just kind of help us see this mother load of God's outrageous love summarized in what we call the gospel. Reading from Titus 3, verses 4 through 7, here's just a, a great summary of what God did when he sent Jesus into this world for us. The gospel is all about the person and the work of Jesus. And just uh, just soak in these words with me. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy... He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. One of the grandest summaries of what we mean by this phrase, the gospel of God's grace. Grace appeared, i.e., Jesus came into this world to do something radical for us. That's what grace is all about. God considering our condition, our desperate need, and doing everything necessary for us so that we would be free, so that we would be free from sin and death, but also free for a very unique lifestyle. Walking through those verses a little bit more, we can't, can't, capture too clearly or more powerfully these amazing images. Again, Titus 3, verse 4, this is beautiful. God showing us his disposition towards us in the sending of Jesus when the kindness and love of our Savior appeared. Um, Marvelous to see in Scripture that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Whatever our images are of God coming into this corporate worship today, I pray that increasingly the Spirit would help us understand the kindness of God. God's kindness has the power to convict us unlike anything else. Our God is not committed this morning to shame us. Our God is not committed to guilt us. Our God is committed to show us the power of his kindness. His kindness will lead non-believers and believers in this room today to a deeper, fresher repentance. When the kindness and love of our Savior appeared, he saved us. And then Paul, again, summarizing the riches of grace, he shows us the the basis of this good news that we have in Jesus. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. There is absolutely nothing we can do, any of us in this room, there's nothing we can do to redeem ourselves. See, that's the good news of the gospel. Uh, this is not a cooperative. This is a, this is a covenant relationship. It's not a contract. It's not Jesus doing his part and we do our part and somehow together the combination works. Uh, that's the image I had as a young believer in 1968 when I came to faith in Jesus as a senior in high school. Automatically dated myself, right? And my next birthday will be my 68th. But as a senior in high school, When I trusted Christ, here's what I thought the deal was. I thought it was, okay, I was 
convinced and convicted about what a foolish life I had been living. And I invited Jesus into my heart. And I thought what took place then was that the slate was wiped clean and I was given a new chance on life. All my sins in the past were forgiven and now I had a chance to prove to God how worthy one day I would be of, taken to, of being taken to heaven. So my, my thought, my wrong thought of the Christian life as a senior in high school was, Jesus does his part. He gives me a second chance. I will now do my part. And at the end of life, somehow or another, the math is going to work together, hopefully, for my ticket into heaven. Men and women, you know what the, you know what the church councils call that? Heresy. That is not the gospel. It's completely from beginning to end an act of God's grace on our behalf, God's riches at Christ's expense. God is a merciful God. God is a generous God. God is a gracious God. That's why Paul goes on in describing these riches of grace in chapter 3 of Titus. He says this, not only were we saved by the mercy of God, we were saved in this fashion through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. When we became Christians, for those of you praying about becoming a Christian, literally this is our condition and this is the good news. If you know the story of Lazarus in the Bible, Jesus makes sure that Lazarus, his friend, is four days dead before he goes, stands outside of his tomb and says, come forth. Now think about kind of the crazy of that scene. Lazarus is, according to the scripture, stinking dead. Jesus stands outside of Lazarus' tomb and talks to a dead man saying what? Come forth. We see the beauty of that is embrace our total inability to do anything about the death that defines us. And see the wonder of the new birth. Literally, for every one of us, that's who we were when the gospel landed on our heart. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. And this grace came powerfully as resurrection life. We were saved by God's mercy through this washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit worked in our hearts, giving us the power we need even to see our condition that we might embrace the Savior that freely comes to us. And then in verse 6, I love all the adverbs of Scripture. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Paul writes in Titus 3, 6, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Uh, God is a generous God. Uh, what Paul basically is saying is, this, these are the riches of God's grace. Go try to stand up under Niagara Falls because that's how, in some ways, even superfluous God's grace is that's been poured out on us. Men and women, our God is a generous God. Whatever your need today, there's a generosity, there's a largeness in the heart of God that gives grace upon grace upon grace. You can see why early in this text, as Paul's going to talk about our living obedient holy lives, he's making it real clear. We have the basis, we have the motivation, we have the means to be a people that would say, Lord, I love holiness. I love purity of heart. I'm so thankful because you are such a generous God that has withheld nothing. You've, you've, you've poured out copious amounts of your love. In fact, only your love is better than life. Only your love will never let go of us. Only your love can unlock the longings of our hearts 
And when we are free, indeed, we live together collectively for your glory. Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs of the hope of eternal life. Two more aspects of the riches of God's grace before we get right back into the theme of this transforming power of this grace. Paul says in verse 7 that for every single person that has trusted Christ to be their Savior, a legal transaction has already taken place. When Paul says that we've been justified by grace, here's what's in his mind and heart. And this is incredibly good news. If you are a Christian today in this room, judgment day has already moved from the future into the present. If you are a follower of Christ, if you have responded to the free gift of eternal life, as Jeremy has already, excuse me, as Jordan has already prayed two or three or seven times this morning, God does love you as much as he loves Jesus. Why? Because you have been declared righteous in his sight. This goes something like this. Let's say at lunch today, uh, you want to take yourself and some friends to your favorite sushi restaurant in town, and that restaurant uh, only takes cash, doesn't take a credit card or a check. So you have to stop it in the ATM machine, right, in order to get uh, a little cash to get your sushi. If you don't like sushi, think tofu, think something, whatever, whatever's good for you. And you put in your card to get out your cash, and when you pull out that receipt, you notice that your balance on that account says seven hundred billion, twelve million and fifteen cent is your balance. Now, being good members of Axis Church, you're so responsible, you don't start pushing numbers to get money that you know that's not yours. You call the bank president. And here's what you hear, right? Uh, well, we just did a computer check, and indeed, uh, someone has been out outstandingly generous on your behalf and has put in your account, yeah, that $700 billion plus change, and they said there's more where that came from. Horrible analogy, because you start thinking about what you would do with that much money. Bring it home in the text. It means that God has already put in your account the very righteousness of Jesus. How rich are you? How free? How fully accepted are you in the beloved? God has justified you, not because you earned anything, deserved anything. God has freely given you the record of Jesus as though you did every righteous thing Jesus did. Now, can you imagine what would happen to your heart and my heart as that good piece of theology becomes doxology? As the good news of the gospel, as we begin to realize, I did not know the good news was this actually this good. We are justified freely and fully once and for all. And not only that, we are, last part of verse 7, chapter 3, we are heirs of the hope of eternal life. The Bible says that if you're a Christian, you are a co-heir of Jesus, of life in the new heaven and new earth. Whatever will you are or are not written into, whatever inheritance you may or may not get or already have received, nothing compares with the good news that my dear brothers and sisters in Jesus, these are the riches of grace. You, the, the new heaven and new earth has been titled to you. You have a life of perfection in front of you. Don't worry about an acre in Williamson County. You are a co-heir with Jesus of the entire universe. I wish we could camp out there the rest of the morning, but there's so much more in the text. The riches of God's grace, they are incalculable. 
This gospel is enormous. But notice back into our main text where Paul goes. We are primarily in, again, Titus 2, 11 through 14. So we look at the riches of God's grace. Now look at the reach of grace. Paul writes in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. What does Paul mean by all people? He does not mean that every single individual eventually will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. But what he means in the context of his whole understanding of the Bible is all of history is bound up with God's commitment to redeem a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. Let me say that again. I get preaching and I start talking way too fast, so let me ramp it down. I loved Jordan's pace of his preaching last week. So he was preaching at the pace of grace. I'm going to slow down a little bit. Let me say that again. All of history is bound up with God's commitment to redeem a family from every single race, tribe, tongue, and people group. You don't understand the connection for that. It's why my brother's going to be planting a church in Clarksville, right? 40% there. One day, Clarksville and Nashville will be covered with the knowledge of the glory of God. Tell me your first name again. Josh. Josh 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 is not going to plant a church as though he's the fourth member of the Trinity. Couldn't pull that one off, could you, Josh? So the good news of this gospel is this is our Father's world. And as crazy as things seem to be in the politics of our nation and the world right now, things are not as they appear. All of history is bound up with this gospel coming and winning for our Father a people collectively that will live together in the perfections of life in the new heaven and new earth. It's one of the reasons why church planting is so vital. It's why it's so important that this church is positioned right on this corner in the shadow of 17 cranes. Y'all are positioned to see the unfolding of God's story. People of diversity coming into this place and risking to believe that God is actually as good as y'all sing about him being. But the Lord is raising the dead constantly. This is what Paul is saying even as he moves in to the practical implications of us loving holiness. The riches of grace summarized so clearly in the whole of the Bible, but expressly in that passage in Titus 3 through 4, 7. The reach of grace, here's the good news. The gospel's coming to us that it might run through us. Thirdly, the righteousness of grace. And I love this part of our text where Paul says, here's the function of grace, back to verse 12. Grace, uh, this, this amazing gospel of God's rich affection and power, that has only one hero, Jesus. This grace teaches us, it trains us. Here's the pedagogy of grace. It teaches us to say no and yes. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Um, We need to begin to see sin as the violation of beauty. See, a lot of us, like myself, came from a background, unfortunately, that thought of uh, sin as basically rule-breaking. And although in the Bible, clearly we can see commandments that we need to learn and take seriously, sin is a lot, lot, lot worse than rule-breaking. Sin is, in essence, contradicting the good, the true, and the beautiful of Jesus. So when the Bible says that grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness, the Bible wants us to understand 
uh, grace is freeing us, calling us, teaching us, training us to say no to everything that contradicts the beauty of our God. And we learn about what that looks like in the scripture. We see that orientation towards the law of God is so freeing. For instance, if we were just to take the Ten Commandments today and to say, here's a great summary of a godly life. If you read the Ten Commandments the way they were given to us, they basically describe the life of beauty and perfection and love and wonder. And grace gives us the freedom to know we've already been forgiven from every way we break the law of God. Grace frees us to see that Jesus has fulfilled the demands of the law for us, and Jesus is now fulfilling the beauty of the law in us. And it's, a, it's, a, it's an awesome thing when a church like Axis becomes a church that sees the beauty of holiness, that sees that as grace trains us, it helps us to think about every aspect of our life with wearing a new set of lenses, the lens of the gospel. How we think about sexuality, how we think about marriage, how we think about money, how we think about time, how we think about everything. We begin to ask the right questions. Father, you who created a world called Eden in which everything was unbroken, you who revealed yourself as Father, Son, and Spirit to be such a glorious God of passion, life, and joy, commissioning your first son and daughter to live in a face-to-face -face relationship with you and fill your earth with your glory. Oh, Father, by the gospel, free us to live that way together as Axis Church in our community. Gang, the best thing that would happen in and through Axis Church is that y'all come increasingly alive to the grace of God and Jesus and begin to repent together, begin to love together, begin to see holiness not as heaviness, but as freedom and delight. It's an awesome thing to be set free from things that are only calculated to kill us. There's pleasure in sin only for a very brief season. And as grace works in our hearts and lives, what happens in a church like yours is y'all begin to become a humbled people and a believing people, a people bearing each other's burdens because you're going to discover increasingly that the gospel puts an end to all posing and pretending. There is a good chance some of you put on your Axis Church pose before you came in those doors. And you would hate to think that anybody really knew what you've been thinking before breakfast this morning or how you live this past week. The assumption is if anybody in this church really knew me, they would give me the left foot of fellowship out of here so quick. Here's the awesome good news. The one that knows you the best, loves you the most. We don't have to pose or pretend. We can be honest about the struggle of our hearts. I spent too many years as a husband, dad, and pastor wearing a certain pose, being so afraid to own my brokenness and really to come out of, the, out of the world of my own layers. But let me tell you, through the gift of a burnout as a 50-year-old man, God really began to say, Scotty, cheer up. You're a lot worse off than you think you are. <laughs> and cheer up. You're so much more known, loved, and accepted. And both are true because the gospel is true. See, there's so many people in the shadow of those cranes and those who live in your community that assume all we Christians are are those that gather to talk about people not in the room. 
when revival comes through grace, we become the chief repenters, the leaders of the chief repenters. We, we are those that don't have more to repent of. It's just that we repent quicker. That's the power and the freedom of grace. We, we say no to ungodliness. We say no to worldly ways. And, and, and not because we're self-righteous, but because we are coming alive to Christ's righteousness. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's the yes of grace. See, the, the no of grace is we become those who are convicted by the word of God. We don't assume in any way, shape, or form that grace is a green card to act like moral morons. We said moron in North Carolina. You probably say moron. See, see, grace is not a green card to be stupid. Grace doesn't mean, oh, it's so good to know God doesn't care about those things anymore. He cares so much that he crushed Jesus that we would be free from sin and death and be renewed in the image of our creator. So the no of grace is, even as we come to the Lord's table in just a few moments, it's, Lord, I accept your judgment. I accept your reflection upon my heart and life. Jesus, you've come to set the prisoner free. Thank you for forgiving me. Set me more fully free from these things that I still run to that are not God. But the yes, the beauty of this yes, we are to live in, in light of God's yes, uh, holy and godly lives. The righteousness of grace indeed, a no and a yes. And, and you see this paradigm really throughout scripture. Let me say this. This is a beautiful thing to understand that Paul, not just in this text, but in other texts show us, here's the paradigm of the way grace works. There are the indicatives of grace that lead to the imperatives of love. But grace always precedes, the indicatives of grace always precede the imperatives of love. Now, what do I mean by that? Um, I was a horrible student for so many years of my life. And so even words like indicative and imperative, I forgot what they meant. So let's do a little English review here. An indicative is a statement of fact. An imperative is a command. And what's so awesome about a grace-shaped spirituality is it starts with every good thing we have in Christ leading to the therefores of how then we live. For instance, Philippians 2, 1 through 11 is a great example that parallels this passage in Titus. Philippians 2 starts in this fashion. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with the Spirit and tenderness. Then, Paul says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, thinking of others more highly than yourself. The indicatives are what? What is the encouragement we have from being united with Christ? What's the comfort from his love? Here are these incredible statements of who we are in Jesus that lead to the imperatives of a radical lifestyle. Paul does the same thing in Colossians 3. Since you've been raised with Christ... God has hidden your life in Christ. When Christ is your life appears, you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death everything that belongs to the old nature. The beauty of gospel holiness looks something like this. I already gave you one image of going to use your ATM card and realizing there's a huge balance of grace waiting for you. Let me give you another image. You're walking to your car to go to that ATM machine to treat your friends to sushi. You get in your car and you look in the passenger side of your car and there's three rattlesnakes coiled up with tails rattling. 
what would be your likely action if this morning you see three coiled rattlesnakes in the passenger side of your car? Let me tell you what you're not going to do. Sweetheart, take a note. We've got to take care of those snakes next week. You take deliberate, quick action. You want to put to death, or at least get out of your car, those rattlesnakes. Why? Because they intend to kill you. When Paul writes, put to death whatever belongs to the flesh, he's using the language of what some of our dear uh, English Puritan friends who understood the gospel referred to as mortification. We don't talk a whole lot about mortification in our day because we think of being mortified meaning, meaning being humiliated and embarrassed. To mortify sin means this. In view of the beauty of Jesus, in view of the wondrous standing and grace that we have, in view of who we are now and will be forever, take quick, sure, deliberate action. Dear friends, you don't have to, dear brothers, let me start with you. You don't have to pray at a screen with a woman's image on it and pray for strength that you will not sin. Turn the dang thing off. Mortification means that we realize there is one who has lost me for eternity named Satan who means to, t- means to take me down now any way he possibly can. Gospel mortification, the imperatives of a righteous and holy life are meant to set us free. And we do our best growth in this lifestyle together in our friendships, in our marriages. Let me tell you the most gospel-shaped marriage is one in which a husband and wife make it easy to repent in that relationship where we're bearing each other's burdens, where we are, we're loving each other and we are anticipating that the longer we live together, the more the Spirit's gonna show us where we're not like Jesus. So we won't be shocked, but we will repent together. We will encourage each other. Imagine a whole church smitten with that kind of love, that kind of gospel culture, which takes us to our fourth and final point before we come to the table. We've talked about the riches of God's grace, barely, because there's so many more. The reach of God's grace, it is God who is the Savior. We show up, we proclaim the gospel, he is mighty to save. The righteousness of grace, the indicatives and imperatives of the gospel, lastly, and I love to finish here in the last one minute and 52 seconds I legally have. The rest of grace. Now, the rest of grace means two things as you finish this text. Rest as in... Ah, oh yeah, I feel so good to rest. But also rest as the completion, right? The one word meaning two things, a double entendre. Rest meanings the full, the full enchilada, the whole enchilada. And rest meaning peace. Notice what Paul says here is our posture as we lean forward together in God's story with one another. Verse, um, verse 14 of our text, excuse me, verse 13 while we were, we're living this way together, marinating in God's grace, repenting by grace, growing in grace, groaning in grace, verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing, the epiphany of our, the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I love this image of the power of being oriented towards the second coming of Jesus. We are to wait patiently, but also excitedly. Why? Dear friends, because the more we understand this gospel and who Jesus is, we realize 
This is the bridegroom coming for his bride. Is anybody in this room engaged right now? Got any engaged couples here today? You're, you should hold your hand up really high over there. It's like you kind of like, you know, in this posture. Yeah, hallelujah. I will never forget when in 1972, I was getting closer to May 5th when my wife Darlene and I were to get married. And I actually thought, I actually prayed this is how stupid I was. Oh, Jesus, please don't come back before I get a chance to be married. <laughs> now, don't, don't, don't go there. Don't worry about all the details. But dear ones, everything marriage is in this life is just a hint of the wedding feast of the Lamb for which we are longing. Do we understand that we won't be living as couples in the new heaven and new earth? Some of you are saying, hallelujah. Some of you are really sad. Don't raise your hand. Uh, these marriages will give rise to the fulfillment of what we know to be true in our heart of hearts. Jesus is the spouse we always wanted. And what you really want will never be found, find its fulfillment in any human spouse or 17 children or different job or different neighborhood or different pastor or different anything. We are made for Jesus. And all of the grace that we already have will be brought to fullness when he returns. But there's a rest of grace right now that means the pressure is off. I don't have to strive. I don't have to work to please God. I am fully and eternally. We are fully and eternally accepted in the beloved. And therefore, let's give ourselves as a church the glory of our God. Let's give ourselves collectively to the story of God in and through Axis Church. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, thank you. Um, 35 minutes felt like three minutes to me. And thank you, Lord, that you're not in a hurry. You're building for eternity. Uh, oh, Lord Jesus, that you would meet us now on this table. Uh, may this communion today even begin to smell like wedding cake. Uh, that, Lord, we understand who we are and whose we are. Thank you for the heart-encouraging, heart-liberating, whole life-transforming power of your grace. Be glorified in our midst, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series, Steadfast and Faithful, Experiencing Encouragement from the Psalms. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.